Hello there and welcome to the second part of our chat with David Ross regarding 1979 and some of the fantastic music that was out that year. As this is a version of the recording for Apple, this is the chat only. There will be no songs on this version. Apologies for that. If you are on Spotify, you can access the full second part, including all the songs, by searching over the garden wall. However, the chat's pretty good, so if you're on here, have a listen and enjoy. Stay safe, everyone. Okay, so that was Good Times by Chic, um, and it sounded fantastic, and it went down a storm at our end as well, a bit of uh, dad dancing going on, on Zoom. Um, glad it's audio only. Uh, so uh, Chic had, uh, had a lot of kind of amazing gigs and, and events and stuff when we were talking, David was mentioning, was listening to a song there about they play Glasgow a lot and stuff, but uh, I, I, would, I would suggest that their highlight of their career has got to be when they were the opening act for the new series of Strictly Come Dancing on BBC One uh, in 2018. And again, if you haven't saw this, go and, go and check it out if you're not a fan of Strictly. Uh, um, no, I'm going to stop you right there, Brian. I, I am happy to admit I am a big fan of Strictly. All right. Uh, well, I'm guessing you've saw the, the clip then. I, I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's one of those times where I, I still get annoyed, and my wife can't really understand this, but I still get annoyed when a, a show like Strictly has as its musical guest James Blunt, or, you know, <laughs> here's the new record from uh, Five or Steps or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I always kind of sit and think, I know it, it's, it's a ludicrous thing, for a man closer to 60 than 50 to be sitting there getting arguing, you know, getting annoyed about that. Why don't they give these shots to bands that I like, you know, or why don't they give shot, you know, an opportunity like that with all that, all that audience to a young band that could actually benefit from, you know, being in that context, new music. You know? But um, you, you know, if the Beatles weren't around now, they, their attitude was we want to be seen by as many people as possible. So they they would have done, you know, I know I, it's, I, it's I, apples I, and oranges, the, 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 the context of the times, but you know yeah, what I mean? They, yeah, I, get, yeah. I, I, I suppose the only reason for bringing that up is, you know, and, and it, sounds, it sounds weird to say it, but, you know, Sheik appearing on Strictly back in 2018 has me punching the air. Uh, as if as if they were you know fucking stone roses or something like that you know um, getting getting prime time TV back in the in the early nineties you know yeah um, I know I know but we're easy, we're easy pleased aren't we in many ways yeah I know I know you know you, you feel like it's a wee bit it's, it's a wee bit of you that's been represented it's a wee bit of life giving you uh, giving you something that justifies the choices you've made you know when yeah. you're younger. So. Absolutely, and uh, uh, you know, and that is very interesting. So please uh, do check it out if you if you get a minute. Um, so back to '79 because there was quite a few interesting kind of musical based events as well that year. I went and dug out a couple. Thought they were worth shouting out. So in April, uh, Kate Bush began her first and for thirty five years only tour. Yeah, and uh, and that is iconic in itself. But uh, she was also the first artist to uh, come out with the wireless microphone. And uh, obviously the kind of dance uh, act that she had and stuff, which is all kind of ahead of its time, very much as Kate Bush was. Mm-hmm. And then they never done it again, really. She's only did a, a sort of review at the Hammersmith Audience since then and, uh, and nothing else, which is um, unbelievable, really, if you think of the musical uh, pedigree yeah. that she's got. 
so that was a big thing in 79. Uh, July, the Sony Walkman went on sale in Japan for the first time. And uh, yeah, many a, many a year in the 80s was spent with a, a Sony, I guess, for a lot of us. There was a big uh, musical event, uh, which was uh, classed to be the No Newts concert uh, in America, mm-hmm. which was in September, which was uh, was obviously all about kind of a, a CND or the American equivalent, mm-hmm. which uh, Jackson Brown organised. But that was um, that was as big as it got real at the time because you had Crosby, Stills and Nash, you had um, uh, Bonnie Raitt, you had Tom Petty, James Taylor, Carly Simon, and you had the E Street uh, Springsteen E Street Band. Mm-hmm. kind of headlining that um, under duress as well. It turned out they nearly didn't play. But then, of course, when they did play, they ended up smashing it and it became a part of folklore, really. So that was a, a big event towards the back end of the year. And probably really significant for different reasons. In November, I also picked up that Bill Haley and his Comets performed Rock Around the Clock for the last time live right. at the um, Theatre Royale, Drury Lane, of all places. Um, so if you think about that book ending rock and roll and you know all the things connected to it, that's yeah. kind of quite um, quite symbolic, I guess. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose the one that I remember the most really from that year, and I don't know whether it's connected to a shift in uh, my own musical interest. Uh, when Sid Vicious died, it was I think January, the beginning of the year. Um, I, I that was a pretty shocking thing, really. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier on. Um, music that I had started to get into that was in any way I, I felt passionate about was maybe a, the year before um, or, or start of the year before um, I lived in a flat and with my mum and dad um, and on thank was quite a kind of deprived area Kilmarnock at the time um, and i Having not moved down to come on uh, that long, didn't have a lot of mates, but it was an, an older guy in the flat above. Um, uh, and you could hear, he was a punk, you know, so you could hear Never Mind the Bollocks or the first Ramones album uh, playing through the, the ceiling, you know. Um, and I think, I, I can't quite remember how it came about, but, um, you know, we, we kind of started talking on the stairs and he'd said, you want to come up listen to some records and stuff? And right up into, into his room and he's got all these records lying about. Um, and I thought, this is just stuff. I, I had no idea these, this kind of music existed. And it was the Ramones one that um, I kind of gravitated to first, you know, just the, the look of the LP. I had it sitting out, he had a poster on the wall. Mm. Like I asked him to put that on. And it just fucking blew me away. You know, I, I think the only other, I had, I had a cousin who was, played guitar, um, lived in East Kilbride, and I used to go and see him quite a lot. Um, but he was into bands like Focus um, and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the, the whole, the, the first side, six songs of that Ramones LP was over before, you know, you, you got to the middle of one Emerson, Lake and Palmer record, you know. Yeah. I thought, this is what music's meant to be about. It should only last about two minutes. Yeah, you know? it was, it was absolutely. Incredible. So I kind of I kind of got launched into punk as a thing that, you know, I thought, this is a, this is amazing. This is just massive. And then Sid dies in the, the January. 
And it, it felt like, again, it felt like all of that, that was the end of that scene, you know? I know, I know it was the end of that scene a lot earlier than that, but mm-hmm. again, the time delay in getting to suburban places or provincial places like Kilmarnock, you know, it, it felt like a really big moment. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it's not, not something that I would have dwelt on for a long time, but I think it probably started to make me think, well, you know, what else is out there musically? Um, so at the start of the year, I, I, if I was to think back in events that had happened in 1979, that's probably one of the ones that sticks out for me the most. I can yeah, remember what it was when I, when I saw the, I, I had a paper run uh, and it was on the front page of the some of the papers that I was, and I remember taking it out and actually uh, about six o'clock one morning, one Saturday morning, I can remember standing there reading this paper before I was delivering them all, you know. Uh, it was uh, a big, uh, it was a big thing for the UK music scene because we've been kind of over in America, haven't we, for a couple of tracks, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, for all the wrong reasons, I guess it, it sort of brings us back to to, to near shore and uh, yeah, the, the UK stuff and the, the kind of the, the end of the punk scene and obviously new wave and and what have you was sort of pushing on at this point. And your next band, I guess, um, probably came through that that secondary. A wave of sound uh, in London, which were Squeeze. Yeah. And w- what do you remember of Squeeze at the time? Um, the, the Squeeze, um, I I kind of thought Cool for Cats is an interesting record. I had another I had another record um, that I really loved it, um, and I, time time's going to um, confuse me here, so you might have to check this. But I kind of associate Cool for Cats with Milk and Alcohol, the Dr. Feelgood record. Right, okay. Uh, and this is where I'll probably find out people will go and check and think that, you know, the Dr. Feelgood one was years later or something like that. But in my mind, uh, there's kind of association between those two records, and I loved the both of them. Um, but Up the Junction was something just completely different, you know. Um, and I think I, I would end up going on to... And I think it's probably quite a good record, actually, in, in terms of bridging the interest in music and, and words, lyrics particularly, and then going on to be um, in, interested in, uh, you know, writing books, you know? Yeah. As I say, a lot, of that, a lot of that would come from the lyrical content on on records. But, you know, if you, if you take... And I'm going to be doing this on Thursday, actually. Through Book Week Scotland, I've got a creative writing workshop to give and up the jump. Okay. I'm going to use as an example, you know, um, of uh, something that conveys a story in the most economical words possible, but appeals to the emotions. You know, it's a song, it's a song that's it's 300 words, you know. So if you, if you write all the lyrics out, there isn't a chorus deliberately um, because I, I think the, the songwriters didn't want the chorus to get in the way of a narrative you know if you have a repeat chorus it just it breaks up that whole narrative and the narrative has to go from a start a beginning an end and a whole series of sequences about this individual who's talking really about pretty profound things you know for a, a pop record you know it's about poverty and it's um it's about there's, there's abortion and you know um addiction um, it, it's quite a it, people don't probably think about it like that, but it's quite a profound lyric. You know, there's an element of regret in there, and then there's you know the tail ends a wee bit about defiance and the you know 
Um, I beg for some forgiveness, but begging is not my business. That's a great line, you know, um, because it, it typifies that whole working class male attitude to things like, well, the bookies are there, or the or the the boozers there, and that's kind of what you know. That's kind of what working class males do. Um, and if yeah. there's any fallout of that, that's you know, it's amazing. It's just it's it's an incredible record. It's very mature, isn't it? And uh, it's it's one of these uh, songs. It, it starts on a high. I think that the first line just kind of sets the tone, really, doesn't it, for everything? Um, yeah, and it's, it's it's such a melancholic record as well. Yeah. Though, despite that defiance. You read the lines, and the, the the narrator knows that he's lost something that's hugely valuable that he loved. You know, um, it's really really profound. I think. Yeah, and I picked up that um, the the title of the song is only mentioned in the last line yeah. of the song, yeah. and I think it was Chris Difford who wrote it, and he was saying that he got that idea from Virginia Plain by mm-hmm. Roxy Music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he liked that idea of it, it kind of ending the story, if if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems to do it really well. I also I noticed that the the films the so they had two singles from the album. They had Cool for Cats and they had uh, Up the Junction, mm-hmm. and they did the two videos in one day, which a lot of the bands would do at that time. Yeah. Um, and if you if you remember the Cool for Cats video, it's a sort of it's, a, it's quite an up song as well, isn't it? But it's quite an up video there. They're kind of they're having a really good time, yeah. and uh, up the junctions, the kind of flip of that. It's kind of they're all sitting in a kitchen. I think somebody said it's John Lennon's old flat or something in London. The, I didn't know that. Yeah. The um the room they're in, but they're all kind of sitting there, and there's there's women in the back doing the dishes and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But uh, one of the guys said that the the reason for that wasn't just the song because the song was like that, but they were all absolutely drunk, stroke hungover. <laughs> Stroke knackered, stroke, you, you know, they, they, they couldn't do anything else really other than sit there and, and sing the song. But um, I, I think, uh, I wonder where you think uh, that they are in the kind of canon of, of you British singer-songwriters. Where would you put um, um, the front I, of Tilbrook? You I, I, used to always get talked about as Deptford, Lennon and McCartney. Um and I, I don't, I, you know, I can see how that association is made. I don't, I don't think they're at that anything like that level. Um, but you know, the, the, there's some records there, um, tempted or black coffee in bed or you know, uh, pulling muscles from the shell. I mean, these, yeah. these are phenomenal records. You know, really cleverly constructed, um, and just things that you know that really resonate with you the minute you hear them. Um, but you know, I, I, around around that, I mean, when you think about um, people that I would maybe value as songwriters around, you know, from this period on into the the, the mid eighties, uh, Paddy McAloon or Difford and Tilbrook, um, Elvis Costello, um, Roddy Frame, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's un- absolutely unbelievable. I I, I don't. I'm not quite sure we've got that same um, lyrical. I may, maybe I'm doing I'm doing modern songwriters a, a, a disservice. I'm I'm not sure there's the same uh, interest in um, social issues that comes across uh, in in the way that even the specials records do. You know, I mean, who's who's making those kind of records now? Probably grime artists. Yeah. More than anything else, um, I think I think 
I like Turner's a fantastic songwriter, and I love the Arctic Monkeys. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure there's 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 many others that would follow that on, and I think there's a reason for it, and it's that you know we've we've kind of devalued the opportunity for working class kids to work their way into to music easily. I mean, every everybody who seems to get anywhere in music nowadays has seen me going to that Italia Conte drama school, or you know, has worked their way through some um, some situation that. In, involves some degree of privilege in their background, and whilst there's nothing wrong with that, don't, I'm not I'm not in any way um, having a go at people who've got that background who want to express themselves creatively. That's great, and it's brilliant that they do it. But I think there's little to no opportunity for um, you know people who've come from difficult backgrounds um, who are then talking about issues that are, are give that balance and are, are reflective and, and allow music to express things that are I think pretty profound and pretty serious apart from maybe in you know grime or hip-hop or do you know what I mean it seems like that mm. yeah yeah and that, I think that's a bit of a shame I have to be honest yeah, I, agree. I kind of agree with all of that. I guess it's just the way it is. Um, the, the other thing that they did have, that I tell you, they, they had a knack for picking up um, supporting bands. So as they were yeah. sort of rattling through their, their early career, I guess being London-based as well, they would have got a lot of um, bands touring through there. But the two or three years that they were coming through, um, some of the bands that actually supported Squeeze were Dire Straits, The Jam, Jeez. The Specials, yep. uh, XTC, uh, U2 mm -hmm. and uh, an REM. Yeah, yeah. So I think there were, there were, when they were part of that music scene at the time, I think there were people they were kind of seen to be with um, because they had respect from other bands and they were kind of quite edgy and stuff. And also they were very good musicians, weren't they? They were, you know, the kind of opposite of punk, if you want. They, they kind of yeah, could play all yeah. their songs. They were good songwriters. They just had that punky attitude, really, that yeah. they came through yeah. their, their stuff, you know, so... Um, shall we have a listen? Yeah. From the album Cool for Cats, uh, their second album, uh, released in May 79 and reached number two. This is the classic Up the Junction from Squeeze. Yeah, I, up, up, up the Junction, um, I use this, um, the text on us is, uh, for us for a, an, old, an English O-level exam. Okay. Uh, because I thought, you know, as, as and I still do, as an as an example of creative writing uh, that tries to capture emotions in a really short uh, word count. I mean, it's only about 300, 300 or so words in the song. It's it's almost perfect. Um, I, I, I failed, needless to say, uh, either because I couldn't interpret it well enough or because it was felt that that's not really the kind of choice yeah. of material that should be getting used. But I'm still quite proud of that. And as yeah. I mentioned earlier on, um, I'm going to be teaching a advanced higher English uh, workshops on Thursday as part of Book Week Scotland, and I've got up the junction and as as a as a, a text because I, I still kind of believe that everything that you want in in a piece of creative writing, um, in terms of the sharpness and the pace and and you know the ability to tell a story um, in in a direct line that is is connected to the emotions is in that song, you know. Yeah, and it's it's great you managed to connect the two, and the, the song itself stands on its own. But um, um, what is that? Forty odd years later, 
yeah. it's amazing you're you're kind of revisiting it again with them um, with younger people to to kind of help them to understand how to to kind of put stuff like that together and I guess you you hope the legacy carries on, don't you? Yeah, I mean that's. I think it's as significant as um, Kez or, you know, Billy Lyar or, um, and, you know, knew, I probably would never admit it, but I, I think Morrissey would have been influenced by records like that as well. They're, yeah. they're doing a kind of similar thing to the early Smiths records, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, it's just a cracking song, Up the Junction by Squeeze. We ran through the big singles of 79 earlier, uh, so I haven't done too much on other arts. and uh, I, I know we're referencing some book stuff, which is really interesting. A uh, couple of kind of TV shout-outs for you from the year, which I thought were quite interesting. So the second series of Faulty Towers was shown in 79, yep. uh, four years after the first series, and I think there's like 12 episodes, is that right, across the, the two of them together? I, I, I didn't, I didn't realise there was such a gap between them. Yeah, though. four years. He, he originally says he wasn't going to do another series um, and for whatever reason he, he ended up doing it. But um, the last one was broadcast, I think, back end of the year, October time. Right. And uh, yeah, again, back to that thing about legacies from bygone days and I guess it, it still stands up really, doesn't it? As, yeah. It's yeah. kind of classic comedy. Um, and interestingly, so that 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 is quite, uh, quite iconic, but on the 11th of November... I wrote this down here because I didn't quite believe it. The most watched recorded programme of the 1970s was broadcast. Any ideas what that would be? Um, I think I know this. Uh, was it um, It's either The Good Life up to The Manor Born or something? You're good, by the way. It's uh, It was the last episode of the first series of To The Manor Born uh, broadcast on BBC One, it was watched by 23.95 million viewers, the all-time highest figure for a recorded programme in the UK. Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That is, aye. Yeah, I mean, the, the, different times, right? Well, you know, I, I think the significance of the year, you know, in other events are obviously the Thatcher getting elected. Yeah. Um, but I, the other, one of the other things that really sticks in my mind is, is being quite... I'd say shocking just at the time, but um, I don't know if you remember Porridge. Um, Richard sure. Beckinsale died. He did. In the That's part right. Of the year. And I, I remember being really shocked at that because mm. I think I think he was maybe thirty-two or something. He like was that. early thirties. That's right. Um, and died of a heart attack. You know, mm. and I remember thinking, God, that, that's that's incredible. You know, and I, Por I loved Porridge. I, it was one of the yeah. kind of programs I watched uh, with my dad. You know, um, we kind of shared similar uh, ideas about human television and stuff like that um, and that that was one thing that I can always kind of kind of sometimes think of my dad when I think back to Porridge yeah. and Richard Beckinsale you know yeah it was a real, it was a real shame and um, you mentioned Sid Vicious earlier and again you know very young age as well and it's it's yeah. interesting how things just are what they are isn't it you just have to, to really get on with it and make the most of it not sure what Johnny Cash would have made of To The Man I Born, mind you. Um, <laughs> however, he did get around to releasing a great album in 79 called Silver yep. uh, after his 25th uh, studio album, I think it was. Yeah. From that time, you've chosen Cocaine Blues. So is it a song that you remember from that time or is this one that you've maybe revisited from um, that year? It, it's representative. I mean, my my dad, uh, you know, it's interesting I've talked to my dad about my dad there, you know, 
my dad loved Johnny Cash. Uh, and I mentioned earlier on that there was always music playing in the house, but it was it was kind of my dad's music, really. Um, was a country and western fan. Loved Glenn Campbell, John Denver, um, uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby Gentry. Um, but Johnny Cash was one of my dad's favourites. And I, I, again, we used to have, you get to that point and it's maybe a rite of passage. And I've had it with my kids where you argue about music and you're thinking, um, what would this, you know, you know, you know, music, music that adults like is just rubbish, you know? Yeah. I, I remember um, always going on about um, Glenn Campbell and the Carpenters and, you know, Johnny Cash and, all these, it's being, it's, it's adult music, it's middle of the road, it's just rubbish. And one conversation my dad had, because he bought that, the reason that this is in 1979, he, that was his record, this silver collection, uh, even though Cocaine Blues goes back to Folsom Prison. It does. Uh, yeah. The LP in the 60s. Um, but I remember arguing about, uh, with my dad, about how it was boring, it was just dull, you know. Why could he not? Why could he not like punk rock music, you know? And I remember that conversation, which just stuck with me to this day. About him saying, um, you know, you talk about Sid Vicious and punk rock records, um, but have a listen to this. And then he puts on uh, the the line, uh, "I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die," and you think, yeah. can you get any more punk than that? Uh, and almost from that time on not not quite but almost from that time on I, I started to think differently about Johnny Cash, Glenn Campbell, Merrill Haggard sure. records that had been in my house for years that I always had a real disdain for and I, I, I suppose that if there's a subtext to all of this in 1979 for me it's just about the opening up of musical influences from everywhere um, and you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie here and say, you know, from from that moment, that conversation, I became a Johnny Cash fan. But I had a different understanding about what these records were and why they would have meant the same to him as, you know, um, a Sex Pistols record or a Ramones record might have meant to me. And in actual fact, there was a connection between them, you know, and the connection yeah. between them all was attitude. Yeah. Know? Yeah, he was he was the kind of punk of his time, really, wasn't he? Yeah. Cash. He was always a you know a bit of an outsider, um, struggled to to kind of be accepted. It was popular, but it was never popular in the way that the big pop artists were. Um, yeah. Even though he was part of the whole Sun thing initially with um, Presley and um, Perkins and all that, and he kind of just kept going that way, really. And you know, talked about the Folsom Prism stuff, which yeah. was yeah. it's iconic, really, isn't it? He was he was made to do that. Um, and this song's one of the highlights from that. I, I didn't realise actually I'd re-recorded it um, for this record until you, you put it on your, your selection and uh, it sounds fantastic, it, it does. And the other great thing about him was that, um, you know, some guys lost their way a little bit when they came out of their, their Halloween days. And But he, he even after 60s, he had his um, TV show, late 60s, yeah. early 70s, yeah. which at the time was um, was pretty important. I remember um, I saw an episode of it recently. Um, I, I think it was um, one of Sky Arts documentaries, but it was an episode they had Bob Dylan on whispering right. they're, they're singing a song. And you just look at Dylan looking at him yeah. uh, in awe, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'd never really noticed it before, but there's Dylan who 
at the time had an attitude for having, you know, not being interested in anybody, um, disdain for the Beatles and everybody else, you know. And he's sitting there, and, and you, you you can't not notice how awestruck he is sitting next to Johnny Cash and singing this song with him. Do you know? I don't know if it's the same uh, documentary, but I remember Chris Christopherson talking about him singing Sunday Morning Coming Down. Yeah. Uh, and Cash played it. He says, I'm going to play it on the show. And Chris Christopherson says, well, you, you're going to have to chop this line because he did a line on it. It says, I'm wishing Lord that I was stoned. Yeah. And he says, that's just not going to work, is it? And again, he went out and sang it. And he says that when he sang the line, he was looking straight at Christopherson, who was in the audience at the time. And it was that, you know, bugger anyone else. I, I don't I don't care what they think, basically. Take yeah. me off air if you want. I'm going to sing it. And uh, I think he just kept going. And the interesting thing was, right at the end, of course, he almost he almost reinvented himself, didn't he, through the the covers and the collaborations and stuff that he'd done with uh, Rick Rubin and yeah, I mean, the American it, it, recordings and stuff in the 90s. Uh, just yeah. perfect, the kind of perfect way to age, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think some, you look at some musicians um even people that you really like and they've not you know they don't know how to age they, they don't know how to mature into a different time that's probably you know anticipating their own mortality but that was all that was about i mean i know, I, I know that rick rubin had a lot to do with that um but the choice the, the song selection and the interpretation of them from from a, a man who increasingly was you know getting close to the end of his own life um, it's really, really emotional, you know. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, some of the best stuff he, he he done, I guess, in his whole career was yeah. um, was towards the end of it. Um, more important than all of that, David, um, Johnny Cash himself declared that he was from Scottish descent. Yeah, uh, I think he traced his family back to eleventh century Fife. I think it was. Uh, which must have been some place to be fair in the eleventh century. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but that's where he was. He was from. I, I, I was going to say it might not have changed much. That's terrible. That's, uh... Not at all. I've got lots of great friends in Fife. Uh, for the record. Uh, <laughs> so I, I guess that that officially makes them Scottish, then, doesn't it? So that's Definitely. another one we'll, we'll stick on our our canon of greats. Definitely. Um, okay, let's stick this one on then. So from the album Silver, uh, released in August 1979, this is Johnny Cash with Cocaine Blues. That was Cocaine Blues by Johnny Cash. We looked at the best-selling singles of the year earlier, 1979. However, the list of best albums is maybe a better indicator of the quality of the music in any year. Um, from the trade and critic lists, uh, from the year end, the top 10 looks pretty good, David. Um, so I'll rattle down these and you can tell me what you think of them. Um, quite interesting. So 10 was, so these are the kind of the composite best of lists yeah. from, you know, your trade mags and, and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So 10 was Tusk by Fleetwood right. Mac. Um, this kind of double album stuff, isn't it? So it's debate about Tusk and Rumours and... Would have hated it at the time, but mm. I've come to um, I've come to love rumours now. You know, for for the great songwriting it is, but I I would I would have classed that as something that uh, punk came along to destroy. Yeah. And then funnily enough, I think Lindsay Buckingham did as well. You know, because I think Tusk was a direct response to trying to do something that was a lot edgier. I'm sure I've read that before. Yeah. I, I remember Travis Cocker saying that uh, this is hardcore 
was Pulp's tusk to yeah. different class I, being rumours, if that makes sense. The same sort of reaction against the, the sort of popularity of, of the record. Yeah. Yeah. which you can see, but um, it's a really interesting record, for sure. Number nine was Rust Never Sleeps by Neil Young. Right. Uh, love Neil Young. Again, wouldn't have wouldn't have particularly known that much of Neil Young at the time, you know, when I yeah. was 15. Uh, so that that's, again, something I've... I think, I think probably, again, developed an interest in through Paul Weller. Yeah, that's a good shout. And also, um, Young was that prolific. He also brought Live Rust out that right. year as well. So he had um, he two for the price of one, really, in 79. Number eight was Highway to Hell by ACDC. Yeah. Um, I, I would have thought, I wasn't sure that that was that year, but they were, they were absolutely enormous. Huge. ACDC, you know? Yeah, huge. Um, this was their last record with Bon Scott. Right. Um, he passed away, I think, earlier the following year. Um, mm-hmm. So this was the last kind of original band record, if yeah. you want. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're huge. You're right for a, for a heavy metal rock band. They, they seem to get bigger and bigger. And and I guess Scottish as well in their own way. Yeah. yeah. Another one we've half adopted over the, the years. Uh, seven was Breakfast in America, Super Trump. Oh, of course. Aye. Who, oh, um, oh. yeah, turned out sort of to be bigger in America. Surprisingly, right. than they than they were in the UK, so they had some yeah. huge success over there with the with the album and some of the singles mm-hmm. off of it. I do love the logical songs on that, which is yeah. Yeah. kind of one of those classic songs, isn't it? There's there's nothing wrong with it really. It just it's just a kind of perfect Aye, song. It's it's um yeah, it's one of those uh, records that you know when, when you're looking back at late seventies, early eighties, um, it's always in the playlists. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere, you know. It was, it was. Number six was Off the Wall by Michael Jackson. Uh, I mean, whatever you think about Michael Jackson, uh, before, since, or after, it's an incredible record. You know? Yeah, so it's a disco R&B benchmark record, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, of yeah. all time. Yeah, for sure. And in some ways it's a shame, isn't it, that you, you struggle a bit to um, disassociate the two. But um, but the record itself is, is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Number five, I think you'll enjoy, uh, Entertainment by Gang of Four. Yeah, um, that's a bit of a surprise, really. I mean, um, I it's a great record, and I've, I've got you know still play it to this day. Yeah. Um, but in terms of selling a lot, I, I would. I'm surprised that it's, you know, it's it's I I, I, I don't know is the, is the last last is, is last about sales or is the last about uh, no it's a recognition so it's uh, it's kind of quality rather than quantity. Right, right. So this uh, is your, um, you know, your NME lists and stuff like that that would have came out at your end. I so, know, yeah. that, that, that's, that's not that surprising then because right. I, I think Gang of Four um, hit, the, hit the top of the, the, the top bits of the John Peel Fest of 50 regularly with the same yeah, records. Right. And again, you know, without turning this into something that just talks about Paul Weller all the time, massive influence on sound effects. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and wire as well. Yeah, absolutely. Number four was Fear of Music, Talking Heads. Right. Um Talking Heads are always one it's kind of bands that I've never completely got into and, and I've never fully understood why not, you know. Um you know, I I I love I love the singles and they're kind of band and, and the, the I think their their LP that I like the most is stop making sense. Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and the film well, that went with it as well. Aye, aye. Yeah. Just we used to play slippery people all the time at, uh, yeah. when I was DJing. Um, but they're, they're not a band that I know the LPs particularly well. And just I know the singles and the records from it. Um, and I and I would know stop making sense back to front, but that's about it. I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's a fantastic record. Um, top three were Unknown Pleasures, Joy Division. Right. Oh, um, sure. For your tea, you were the T-shirt in tribute yeah. to that. Um, number two was The Wall, Pink Floyd. Right. And um, again, maybe not at the time. Are you? Have you revisited Floyd, or are you? Are they still not in your world, or? No, not no. not really not my kind of thing I mean and, and Kate Bush is the same I suppose I mean I put them in the same I, I mean I really like Kate Bush you know and she was definitely um, you know a, a, a real innovator in music um, and, I, and I grown to love Kate Bush in a way that I don't think I could ever really like Pink Floyd I have to say mm. uh, I, I mean I like the, the I, I like the the early stuff the Arnold Lane and the, the Sid Barrett level um, because I, I probably, I, would, I look at that and kind of tune that a wee bit more to the mod side of the 60s and the kinks and things that I'm, I'm definitely interested in. Sure. Um, but, you know, as, as a comparison between Pink Floyd, um, Kate Bush, I suppose, you know, uh, and Debbie Harry, as we were talking about earlier on, Debbie Harry felt like she could have come from round our way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, whereas Kate Bush and Pink Floyd were definitely from the posh uh, houses up the street that always shouted at you if you were anywhere near their, near their motor <laughs> or something like that. And, uh, they were all the kids that went to private schools. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess the, the band that number one would, would maybe be from uh, up your way as well. So number one album uh, voted was London Calling by The Clash. Oh, it's amazing. Which is, uh, yeah, it's iconic. And we'll maybe touch on the class as we we have a rattle through the rest of your songs. Maybe one of, you know, and and the top five of my favourite LPs of all time, I think. Yeah, I couldn't argue with that. Uh, The interesting B-side note is that it was released in the UK at the end of 79, but it was released in America at the beginning of 80. Um, And I remember that because the Rolling Stones voted it their uh, album of the decade in the 80s and it was voted the album of the decade in the 70s for for Record Mirror or Enemy or someone like that I can't remember who it yeah. was but there can't be many bands that have managed to, to do that with one record you know so yeah. Yeah. pretty clever um, it's, it's a good list you know I think it, it does it does reflect um, 79 and that kind of eclectic thing that we mentioned earlier on and it didn't go down any further than that but in the next 10 there were records from The Police, The Jam, Public Image Limited, yeah. uh, B-52s, Tom Petty and the Specials. Yeah. yeah so you can see there was a real depth there to, to the quality, yeah, I guess. I'm glad you picked the quality one and not the cost. Or, or <laughs> not the, the, the sales. Well, we did the best-selling singles earlier. It's nice to get the balance, I think, right. be, between the two, isn't it? Um, I'm sure kids from Fame LP would have been in there somewhere, probably. Probably. Uh, and you'd be pleased to know the next band you've chosen were also in the top 20 list. Right. Uh, Wire. So their oh, record right. made the top 20. So what was it, do you think, that got them that level of recognition at that time? Um, I, I think the... the um, I, I like most... Like, a lot of the, the records here um, 
that are maybe a bit off the beaten track, like Gang of Four and Wire. Um, I I heard these records on John Peel's show, you know, um, and I remember uh, thinking that there, there were certain things that were played on uh, his show that I would listen to, and I, I started to get into the point where I would listen to the show religiously, you know, mm-hmm. um, for the same reason, actually, you know, you're starting to hear things that are so um, different and eclectic and, you know, that that whole realisation that you're like a kid in a, in a sweet store, you know, and you've got the pick of everything that's there. Um, and there's things like Misty and Roots and Aswad and on the one hand, uh, you know, Lee Perry and over here and then there's things like Wire and these really short snappy buzzing records that you know you think are um, really minimalist and, and just hit you right where it is but I think the difference with Outdoor Minor um, is um, rather than being something that was particularly harsh so let's go back to the Mekons and, and never being in a riot you know um, which I never really took to um, Wire of and, and this record particularly um, have captured melody, harmony, um, you know, a sparseness about the sound that is, is just jaw-dropping, you know? Um, and at the time, when you're sitting there thinking, I can no idea what, even trying to find the lyrics of it, still to this day, no idea what that song's about, you know, whether it's yeah. about... Uh, no, me neither. Uh, evolution or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not really about um, a lyrical interpretation that's fairly straightforward in the way like up the junction is, but there's something about the combination of how it's sung, how the melody catches you, how the the instrumentation—it's just you know getting all theoretical here about it. When in fact, it's it's just a great great pop song, you know. Yeah. Also, the very also the very first single I bought that was anything other than black vinyl. Which color was it? Bear with me one second. For the listeners, Dave is away finding a copy of Outdoor Minor, I believe. Because um, I, I think I've just pad as he's doing this. Um, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's obviously you know, um, Go it's, it's, a, it's not a visual format. This. That's okay. Can... It's a white record, but the reason I was going to find it was was um, white, for a different right. reason, and it was going to link between this and the and the, the next song. Um, at this time in the seventies. Uh, late 79, uh, a mate and I were starting to entertain the idea of uh, mobile DJing. It wouldn't actually get to that for another couple of years, but this was where it all kind of started. And as I mentioned earlier on, um, you know, maybe once a week we'd be going to uh, house parties in, in Kilmarnock with people that, you know, were either your mates or else were broad spectrum of folk who were about whose parents had uh, had gone somewhere and folk had had a party and invariably that meant the police getting called or you know the, the house getting trashed or whatever but anyway um, in the starting point of all this um, interest you know we are starting to think 
you know, you go to house, but this is going to sound terrible and I should get to jail from us, but you're starting to go and folk have got records lying all over the place, you know, and you're sitting thinking, well, they're not going to miss a few records <laughs> here and there, you know, we've not got that much money. How do you start a mobile DJ uh, yeah. disco thing without records? You need, to, you need to start somewhere, you know. Right. So I, this record that I was looking for there, I stole from a house party in 1979 and I've still got it. Um, and it was the white vinyl version of Wire. Um, and the story about this was I'd, my mate and I had lifted a few records that we thought people wouldn't miss. And um, I loved this record, you know, okay. absolutely loved it. Um, but when we when we left, uh, <laughs> Delroy, uh, the, there was a Delroy Wilson record, and there's the um, the other one that I've got in the God, I've terrible memory at the minute. The one that you're just going to play after Wire, uh, Dennis Brown, pocket, Dennis yep. Brown, um, which I'd heard a couple of times, but I thought you know it was okay. Uh, you know, John Peel had played that a couple of times, but I saw it here and I lifted that one. There's a couple other ones. And we were running up the hill uh, away from here, you know, with all these records. The party had ended at the back door. And my mate had said to me, uh, did you get did you get a wire record? Did you get a wire record? Did you see it? It was white vinyl and everything, you know? I said, no. And he said, oh, there was, there was, it was definitely there, wire record. I thought, fuck, I love that record, you know? Yeah. So handed him the, the other ones and went back to the party uh, with the sole purpose of going in the back door hunting about and uh, <laughs> running the risk of getting an absolute doing in order to root about and try and find this record and nick it. And I did. And you did. Uh, out the back door, through the rhododendron bushes, over the hedge, and away you go. Yeah. Uh, it's, almost the, it's almost the start of an idea for a book, isn't it, really? Well, that I, yeah. I kind of use that one, to be honest, because the, yeah. the first the, the first books would be more kind of autobiographical than the other ones. And sure. That wee story is in it, so yeah, that's my wee tribute to the power of the wire record. Absolutely, um, and I, I've, were... always, I've always kind of persuaded myself that if I ever meet the guy who had that party now, I, I would I would give him a signed copy of the book and I'd give him that record back. But I, I'm not really sure I would. I'm just trying <laughs> try to solve my conscience. Do you still know the guy? No, I, no. I, I I've got a funny. I, I don't know, and it's no. not not somebody that I even I've, I've even heard people talking about. I don't know whether right. he moved away. I think it was a guy called Colin Blair. So okay, that's to, it's out there now, Colin. Myself, absolutely, you've been outed. And they were, you know, the actual band and the record itself. Uh, I mean, they, they were kind of they remained a bit of a cult band, really, didn't they, through their, their career? But I was reading they they got really close to having a kind of proper hit with this song, so they'd signed to EMI. And they obviously got a bit of muscle behind that, but you know, by pushing the record. But they got accused of a record chart rigging, right? And with the single, um, which they vehemently denied, but uh, they they believed there was accusations that people were going in the the shops that counted for you know the record sales and doing sort of multiple purchases and stuff like that. Oh, right. Yeah. And the week that that was all going on, there were number fifty one in the charts. And the next week, they sold twice as many records as they had to get to number 51. Mm -hmm. And what they done was they, they, they discounted all of those sales for that week. 
So they basically just they stalled and then, of course, uh, it fell away to the point where they'd been lined up to appear on top of the pops. And they pulled them, obviously, when, when the word of this story came out that uh, that everyone was talking about. Uh, and they replaced the gap on top of the pops was taken up by Donny and Marie Osmond. So when you're looking at that 79 story again and, you know, the old and the new and uh, and what have you, there's not a better example, I guess, of um, all the all the good uh, and the bad. I feel bad about that now because it, would have, it wouldn't have helped or cause the fact that I was <laughs> nicking records, nicking the records from other people rather than buying them myself. Uh, I also picked up, because the single version is slightly longer than the album track, because yeah. uh, it sort of padded out a bit because it was quite short, wasn't it? And yeah. um, I, I, I always really loved the short version. I mean, you know, when you when you think of how much harmony and and you know just beauty they get into about a minute and thirty seconds or something. Yeah, it was one forty five, and then I think the the extended version was about a minute or so longer yeah. than that. And I know that the the um, guitarist uh, Bruce Gilbert he kind of agreed with you because although it became their, their song, really he refused to play it live. Aye. The the extended version yeah. to the point where they ended up dropping it from their set because they couldn't agree I, which version uh, to play. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'd never really known the story behind why there was an extended one, but I think um, the the one the, the the one the one minute and thirty forty seconds is perfect, you know. Yeah, it reminds me of that story, the the Morrissey and Mar story about when they presented, please, please, please to. Mm -hmm. uh, Rough trade and rough. The minute it kind of faded out, a minute and fifty or something like that. The Jeff Travis had said, "Then where's the rest of it?" And <laughs> and I looked at him and thought, "What do you mean, where's the rest of it? It's perfect the way it is." Yeah. And and it is, you know, it's, yeah. you could you could make an arguable case. It's it's maybe one of the best Smith songs there is. Because yeah. um, what could what could you take? What could you add to it or take away from it that would improve it? Nothing. No, absolutely nothing. Yeah, dead right. And they were a band that they never stopped innovating. And yeah. uh, they were a big influence, weren't they, on bands going forward of that ilk? Certainly, bands like The Cure were were heavily influenced um, by them, and you, you can hear that. So um, let's put this one on. So David's seventh selection is from Wire, and it's called Outdoor Minor. That was Wire with the seminal post-punk song Outdoor Minor, chosen by our guest today, David F. Ross. You chose 15 songs for your 1979 playlist, David. Uh, we'll be playing eight of them in the podcast. However, before we play your next and last one, thought it'd be good to look at the other seven and uh, get you to do a brief review of each of the songs, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, okay, so first one I have is Doesn't Make It All Right by The Specials. Yeah, The Specials, um, that, that record, um, I mentioned earlier on that there was a group of my mates who were all really kind of into um the jam and then the ska thing became a big deal for all of us as well and the the first that's first specials lp i i bought with money earned from a paper round um and it was maybe maybe one of the first lps i can remember desperately saving money up for to go and buy and you know not have to save all that much at that time i think lps were about 399 or something like that but um, remember um, going into town. Uh, I think it was a place called the Carbon Poppin and come on it and, and desperately going out and holding this thing and examining what was inside it and all the rest of it. And then starting to listen to it and getting um, 
really, really into the lyrics of all of the songs and stuff like that. And this was the one that really stood out for me. I mean, I, I, I think um, everybody loved Too Much Too Young um, and Gangsters, but right from the very first play of that LP, this was the one that really kind of jumped out at me. And I, I, I guess it's probably a wee bit, again, back to this recurring theme of um, you, you, you're starting to maybe have a year where music and other forms of art begin to influence the person that you are, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I guess with the Dennis Brown record as well and, and specials, uh, Lee Perry and, and what I was listening to starting to become aware of black music a bit more. And I think the, the specials were, were definitely of that kind of influence and a song like this, which is really talking fairly specifically about, uh, racism as an issue that, if I'm being honest, I, I we didn't really experience in Kilmarnock, you know, at yeah. that time. Um, but you, you, through um, an understanding and a, an interest in politics, and you mentioned CND earlier. I, I became a member of CND that year as well. Right. You start to become a bit more idealistic, and hopefully, well, I hope anyway. Um, those ideals are you know, empathetic with other people and you become a bit more tolerant and with a bit of luck, that stays with you for your entire life. It doesn't it doesn't blunt or weaken the older you get, you know. Um and I, again, you know, I guess I've got I've I've got music to thank for a lot of the, a, a lot of those influences and thoughts and you know it's it's amazing to think that the music that you listen to and the things that you absorb um culturally are, are directly related to the person that you become and, and therefore, you know, hopefully the father that you might become as well to um, to your own kids, you know? Yeah. Um, and also I, you're picking up on all those powerful messages and and you're right, there was, um, there was all sorts of stuff going on in there, but they managed to do all that in a song that you would tap your foot to and sing yeah. along to, you, you yeah. know, it, it yeah. had that double benefit, didn't it? It didn't, the sound didn't ostracise you, it, it sort of brought you in almost, oh. and then you got the lyrics, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. No, nobody uh, liked them at the moment, I don't think, as you said earlier. No. There's no, I, I, you know, I, I say they probably the only, the only, the only genre of music I, I can really find a lot of that is either hip-hop or um, grime music, which mm. is a bit of a shame, you know. Um, Idols, possibly. Uh, yeah, I, it, it it doesn't. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Mm. Um, I, I think there's a wee bit of attitude with um, Fontaine's DC as well. Sure. I, yeah. I I kind of recognise, um, and I've kind of got high hopes for them. I suppose in terms yeah. of where they might develop. Yeah, yeah. So at the bars a couple of weeks ago, actually, they were they were fantastic. Fun yeah, it's yeah. it's probably a it's maybe a wee bit of a lazy um, suggestion for me to think that it's not out there. I'm maybe just not looking hard enough, to be honest. Mm. And and that's I, I you know I mean, we mentioned earlier on. I still at this age love finding something that speaks to me in the same way that some of these records did when I was that age. Because it's 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 still possible. I don't think I've really changed. Yeah. Maybe, as I say, maybe it's harder to it's sometimes harder to find music nowadays. You know, there was, there was more outlets for it, I think. And you know, back then, um, it's, it's yeah. maybe a bit harder nowadays. Well, we mentioned um, um, London Calling was the, the, the kind of record of the year, if you want. Um, so your your 10th track was not on London Calling, but it is from The Clash, uh, Gates of the West. Yeah, it, it was um part of a uh, an EP that I had, 
Yeah. Um, I, th- I think. Um, uh, what was the yeah, uh, Groovy Times was on it? Uh, what else was on? I fought the law. Aye, and I someone the else can't, right. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, and I, my dad got me this record, um, and not because he went out and bought it, but my dad uh, worked in the railway in, in Central Station, uh, and the parcel office, and you know would. In, in those days, um, record companies would send uh, white label records and other records to the, the radio stations through Royal Mail, you know, the, the railway. And uh, whilst these records wouldn't necessarily have fallen off the back of a lorry or the back of a train, more, more importantly, you know, my dad knew that I was starting to get an interest in music and would, would occasionally bring some of these records home. Um, and... I remember this being this being one of them, and you know there was a fair there was a fair amount of absolute crap that he bought back as well. But the, I I remember the joy when he handed me he said, yeah. "You'll probably like this one," you know, yeah. and playing it. And from vet from the very outset, I loved this record, particularly the line in it. Um, uh, I checked my pulse and the pulse of my friends, you know, and I, I just there was something about that that captured me the the, the joy of being alive at that time. Yeah, uh, you know and, they wrote uh, in America thing, didn't they? So it was um, yeah, it was a sort of yeah. first first exposure to America, but as part of that kind of looking at America, but looking back again to right. where they came from and you know wanting to get home again and stuff as well. So it's it's kind of quite a lot of emotion in the record. Feels yeah. like a bit of a bridge between Give Them Enough Rope and London Calling. Yeah, and it's it's, no. it's got um, you know I I I, I mean, Joe Strummer really to, to some extent the identity of the Clash, but. Mm-hmm. A lot of the songs that I, I love from the Clash are Mick Jones uh, vocals, you know, and, and that's one of the better ones for me. Yeah, know. and uh, you mentioned earlier on, I mentioned, sorry, about your signed Joe Summer LP, so you, you have yeah, to just that, mention how that came about. Well, that, that was a really interesting day, and, and um, one of uh, one of my um, mates invited me, Stephen Watt, who's a, who's a poet, was, yep. was put together... Um, a tribute for um, Joe Strummer for Strummerville, you know, the foundation. And they'd been asked to uh, compile a list of poems by writers. Um, it was the 16th anniversary of Joe Strummer's death. Um, so 16 uh, pieces of poetry or, or written contribution to go into um, a publication to celebrate this uh, event, you know, and he asked me, um, I'm fairly certain I wouldn't have been his first choice, but he, asked, he kindly asked me if I would write something and I didn't want to pass up the chance, but I'd never written poetry before, you know, so um, he, he told me that he'd, John Cooper Clark was doing one, um, John Robb, Pauline Murray from Selector, yeah. Um, a whole Kevin Williamson, a whole host of people um, who are, you know, I thought, fucking, what have I, what have I said that I would do here, you know? So eventually, I, I, I wrote this wee paraphrase thing, which was about the day um, I went down to get 19, maybe 1980, remember that being 89, I think, was when I signed it. Um, and Joe Strummer was doing a record signing in the middle of Glasgow. Uh, and things, 
I, I think things probably weren't going particularly well for him at the time. He was had a band called the Latino Rockabilly War, and they were yep. playing at the Barrowland that night. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have a ticket. I wasn't going to go, but it was Joe Strummer, you know. So nip, nipped out of work early to nip down to this record signing. When I got there, uh, there was nobody there. It was just him. Uh, it was either it was either finished or it was not that many people had turned up. So I kind of walked up to him from behind. I'd already picked the record up, and I was going to ask him um, if he would if he would sign it. And he kind of turned round and his arm raised and he elbowed me in the face. You know. <laughs> um, so the net result of that was, you know, I think because he felt pretty bad about it. You know, standing talking to him for a wee while, leaving the the store with him. And walking back up to his hotel up Union Street, right. uh, and eventually said, "You going to get tonight?" That's no, I'm not going. I got a ticket, and eventually got as a pass thing, and went to get tonight. And it was brilliant, you know. So I wrote a wee poem about um, about this particular thing, and the one thing that I remembered the most about him was his voice. You know, the his speaking voice was. Um, totally fucking captivating you know it's like kind of wee bit like but you know bob dylan's got a really interesting speaking voice and then mm-hmm. you know there's there's rhythm and there's flow and you know you, he's one of these kind of people you could listen to for ages you know mm-hmm. um so that's the whole thread of this poem was the one thing that i remember was you know the way the way he spoke um and it totally different from the the shouting the expectation of yeah. um, something like English Civil War or something like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he, he signed that that day, and, and that was um, that's if the house bump if the house was in fire, that's the one thing I'd be reaching <laughs> for first. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, it's, it's a great story and a great song as well. Um, never played it live, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said they couldn't can play it, but I don't. I'm not sure about that, but. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It seems like kind of, seems like kind of fairly straightforward. Yeah, it's not, there's it, something else going on. Not, in that, I think. It doesn't seem a million miles away from training vain, you no. know. Uh, no, it doesn't. Mike so. Jones as well, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number eleven was Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind and Fire and the Emotions. Boogie Wonderland. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any kind of story connection to this, to be honest, and I don't have any background to it. It's just, I, I one of those songs that was. Um, Everywhere, and you know, so I can't remember the Saturday morning TV programs that were on at the time, but um, I don't know whether it was your swap shop or whatever preceded that came before it. Um, yeah, but any time you turned on the telly, you, there would be that record, but it was a record that um, I think deserved to be there, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just again, it's a wee bit like the sheep record. There's so much depth to the whole thing. Um, I'm not a great, and you know, I'm not a, I'm not a massive fan of the band. Um, but uh, you know that if, if that record came on anywhere, I would stop and listen to it. And it, it's probably, you know, there's stories behind sort of a lot of the other records that I've picked. And there's not really a story behind that. But if you were to talk to me about 1979 and just say the year, 
it's one of the things that would come to mind first and foremost. Along yeah. with, along, I mean, I'm jumping about the order maybe a wee bit here, but along with the Tubey Army record as well. Yeah, yeah, we'll come on to that in a second. And um, you're right, it's just an, it's an iconic, iconic song. And uh, I was reading that Miles Davis, Miles Davis, sorry, says that they're an all-time favourite band. Yeah. that They have everything in one band that you need. You think, that's well, probably, that's pretty probably good, isn't it? You know, I, yeah. I, I think... Uh, yeah, I mean the the, the uh, September's another amazing mm-hmm. record, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I, again, it's back to that thing. If 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 you never did anything else in your life, but you know, but you did that, that that four minute song, you know, that would be enough for most people. Be enough yeah, for me. Absolutely. <laughs> Number twelve was uh, is she really going out with him, Joe Jackson? Yeah, I I, I that's a record that um, I remember buying for. A girl that I liked at the time, um, and in the hope that uh, not probably not actually um, thinking that the lyric or the message or the title of the song was anything other than the fact that you know it was a pretty good record, and um, I seem to remember her saying that she quite liked it. I didn't steal this one; I actually did buy this one. <laughs> her. Uh, and no mixtape either. Probably the first time that Ooh. I'd bought. Uh, bought a record for a girl, but in, in true, in true teenage uh, broken romance fashion, um, I think uh, what's that? What's that Billy? That Billy Bragg line? She cut her hair, and I stopped loving her. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, walk away so, in the next. Yeah. There's that. There's the shallowness of youth, you know. <laughs> and I never get the record back, you know. I, I'm sure I've probably <laughs> contemplated. Oh, you've cut your hair now, is there any way I can get that record oh, back? Brilliant. And it's it's one of those. Cla- it's a great song. It's one of those. Uh, Classic first liners as well, isn't it? Um, Pretty women out walking with gorillas down my street. Yeah, I, I remember the, yeah. Uh, there's there's a story you maybe know this, and it's I, I jumped to the next artist, but um, Elvis Costello, um, they was so annoyed about the um, the attempt at what he would call plagiarism that when they went to uh, they, they were on a radio uh, broadcast. And there was a, a a cassette that was due to be played with the Joe Jackson thing, and they swapped it for uh, for, an album, <laughs> for one of his know. songs. Um, there's a wee story about that in his autobiography. Um, it just it kind of hints at the fact that I think um, Joe Jackson's a pretty good artist in his own mm. right, mm. but you know Joe Jackson, Graham Parker, and the rumours. There's a kind of relation to the kind of stuff that Elvis Costello was doing at the time as well. Yeah, and the al- the album's very new wave, um, which yeah. is surprising yeah. if you think of where Joe Jackson ended up going. But um, a lot of the tracks have got that Costello jam clashy yeah. sort of feel to it. You know, it's a really good album. That's a great record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your next one, as you say, is Elvis Costello. Accidents will happen. Yeah, and I, I think I think if pushed at the moment, maybe it's just the way I feel about it at the moment. But if pushed, I would I think Armed Forces is my favourite. Elvis Costello record. Okay, that's interesting. I, I love Elvis Costello. I mean, I've yeah. seen Elvis Costello loads of times, um, and he's he's another another um, musician or artist that I can I can find something of interest in everything he does. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Bacharach stuff was brilliant. Mm-hmm. The uh, Brodsky Quartet stuff I loved because of the, the the lyrical nature of it all, you know. Um the the early records are all phenomenal. Everything that he's done, even even the ones that maybe people 
who are real fans would look at and think, ah, you know, there's a there was a period of time, whether it was the late eighties or whatever, that that you know, um, you just brush over. I, I can find something great in all of them, you know. But Armed Forces, I think, is probably the the record that I think is consistently brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all of it, um, um, you know, and and Accents Will Happen is just such a phenomenal record. And, and another another brilliant record to start, you know, you, you talk yeah. about, you could do a podcast on great opening album tracks. You could indeed. Uh, if, if, you know, if I was doing that, Accidents Will Happen would be up there. Yeah, it's probably maybe in the shadow at the time of Oliver's Army because it was a single that came out after yeah. Oliver's Army, um, which of course was, was kind of breakthrough really for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right, it's, it's a fantastic song. Um, the only thing I picked up listening to it again, and I went and checked this, is that there's no guitars on it. Do you know that? I no, I didn't. No, I didn't know that either. And uh, you know, we I went. I don't get. I don't believe that. And we back and listen to it again. But but there's not. There's like double yeah. piano tracks and stuff for the the uh-huh. rhythm. But um, no, the, it doesn't doesn't no, strum a guitar. Yeah, I'm gonna go and listen to it's, that. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really I'm interesting gonna, one. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but I just. It's yeah. funny how that combination of sounds make you feel that it's a full band track. You know. We, 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 Bobby was on doing 1970 and one of his songs was, uh, was it Ride the White Swan by T-Rex? Right. It was, and Bobby was talking away about it and stuff, and a fantastic song. And he was talking about, he talks a lot about kind of stomp music, because mm-hmm. he would have been 12 or 13 at the time, and it was stuff you went to the school discos with your mates, and yeah. Slade and all that stuff, right? And he, that song was on, and I said to him, yeah, you're right, Bobby, I says, but you, you know there's no drums on the track. Bobby says, well, there's drums on the track, isn't there? I says, no, there's not. There's hand claps and like uh-huh. a tambourine thing going on. Yeah. But same thing, you wouldn't for a moment think that the song's not got a drum beat behind it because it's got that lovely rhythm Aye. to it, you know? So it's amazing. It's but songs you can still learn from as you're, you're getting older. Yeah. A um, couple more to finish. Uh, 14 was at home. He's a tourist, uh, Gang of Four. Yeah, G- Gang of Four, um, I think probably... Uh, you know, we've been talking about the influence of John Peel and John Peel's programme and, you know, how that broadened out musical tastes for, I'm sure, so many teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because you're, you're, you're hearing it again for the first time and that, that joy of lying in your bed with a radio under your ear, under the covers, and it's, it's taking you to all these different worlds, I think. Um, and Gang of Four... Uh, were a band that um, really resonated with me, you know, at that point. And then I, I delighted, didn't know it at the time, but, you know, you you jump a year uh, forward and it's clear Weller's been listening to them as well because, you know, Gang of Four are all over sound effects. You Absolutely. Know? Um, and that's, I, I, I guess, probably why sound effects is... is I mean, Setting Suns is, is is a favourite jam album for me for emotional reasons and personal reasons, but Setting Suns is the best record, I think. Mm. You know, and Andy Gill's got that real um, legacy to his guitar playing, hasn't he? It's a bit, you yeah. know, people talk about Wilco Johnson and stuff, but Andy Gill mm. in his own way has got that style yeah. that, that a lot of people seem to um, adapt and pick up on. Yeah, and yeah. unique, pretty unique records, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, mentioned it, I mentioned earlier on that connection to the, the, the Mekons, and uh, as I understand it, the the one of the band members, the Mekons, Andy Corrigan, named the Gang of Four. Oh right, okay. 
because they, they're all from sort of Leeds at the time and they mm-hmm. travelled around and they didn't have a name and uh, they were passing some poster, something to do with a poster where a Chinese uh, rebellious group that were getting tried or something, some sort right. of poster yeah, on the wall. Yes, aye. Yeah, and, um, and there was Gang of Four, so that, that's where that came from. So um, there you go. Uh, last bit of trivia on that one is talked about Rolling Stone stuff earlier. So they did one of their weird lists, which is... I think it was the 50, 50 best or greatest punk albums ever, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I was Googling some stuff um, for coming on. So I Googled that and I thought, that's a bit weird, especially with the Rolling Stones. So um, so this album was fifth in the rank. Yeah, just checked here. So the uh, Gang of Four Entertainment was fifth. Do you want to have a stab at any of the other four just before we finish up? Um... You'll get a couple for sure. Say, say that again. Say, tell, so, tell me the criteria again. Greatest punk album of all time, as by by writers and uh, critics and stuff uh, that the Rolling Stones put together a few years after. So Rolling Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. In America. Then. Uh, it was in America, but yeah, it was sort of looking mainly at the whole punk thing. Uh, well, I'd imagine never mind the box is. There's number three. Uh, punk, punk. Television, Marquee Moon. No. no. One's arguably not punk for me, although Attitude for sure. It's the the first um, um, Stooges album. Oh right, okay. Um, so the other two, the other two are classics. Yeah. Buzzcocks. Uh, first Clash album. First Clash album, of course. And number that? one was the Ramones that you talked oh, about. Oh, the Ramones, aye, aye. Which I think for lots of people is the kind of jumping off point, really, isn't it? For yeah, yeah. Or for punk as we know it, I guess. Um, but you're right, Gang of Four, um, uh, very clever, very talented, and uh, certainly very influential in some big bands at, at that time uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. And your last one, just to square all that off, uh, we talked about Gary Webb earlier on. So your last tracks are Friends Electric by Chuby Army. Yeah, I. I, I, I mentioned earlier on I got a bit of a disdain for electronic music and yeah. I, that new order apart that's still probably the case um, but there was something magnetic about this record yeah. you know um, and clearly uh, from the success it had and the, the amount of time it spent at number one I, I wasn't the only one that thought that mm-hmm. I think it, it probably been unfair to Gary Newman here by saying I think that was as good as it got for <laughs> Yeah, arguably. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, yeah. but it's, it's you know again back to that point. If you did nothing else with your life but wrote our yeah. friends electric, you know that that would be good enough for most people. It's just a great record, you know. Amazing, um, and and one of those top of the pop moments as well, isn't it? You know, vividly remember him being on it and looking different to yeah. anything else that was going on uh, at that point. You know, yeah, it's quite. Um, I think he was quite self-effacing about a lot of that. You know, I expected them to be really po-faced. But I remember it's, it's on quite regularly about that record and saying that one of the reasons why he had asked to be uplit from the bottom uh, was because he was really self-conscious about his teeth. He thought his teeth were too big. Um, and he was trying to find ways of uh, hiding that. I think it came, came across as fairly robotic and quite, you know, android and stuff. And it was just it was interesting for him to say it was nothing a lot to do with the fact that he had no confidence in his own looks, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it's just, it's a great story. You, yeah. You know, and it, it definitely worked, but 
Um, they did. And they had two albums in 79, so... Um, yeah. they, they disbanded after this record and you're right, it probably wasn't better um, than this but, um, but pretty good effort from yeah. a standing yeah. start really to kind of find electronic music and knock this out in the space of a year so fair effort I can't remember the first track on the record I can't remember what it was called but uh, on the album, but it always reminds me of Psycho Killer so if you're if you're giving it a spin you'll, you'll probably hear it, it's quite one, clear uh, I think I think the only one that I can remember from that LP was a song called Down in the Park that's right yeah yeah. I don't know whether that was it or not no it wasn't but that's kind of quite, it's quite eerie and dark and stuff isn't yeah. it yeah yeah. he's quite a clever guy and probably better than Chubby Armin than the Jam I think just to, to square yeah, that one off right. from earlier on right <laughs> <laughs> agreed <laughs> Okay, uh, thanks for that. Uh, obviously, we we will have all those songs on the um the the supporting playlist as well, David. So all fifteen of them will be there to to listen to and enjoy. If we are able to stick a bonus track onto the end of the podcast from those seven, what which one would you go with to stick on? Um, seven. I think um I think the Elvis Costello one really uh, it, it's probably the one that I would I would listen to the most. Okay, we'll see what we can do with that. So let's move on to your last selection uh, and some reggae to finish up with from Dennis Brown with Money in My Pocket. Uh, So was it just a song that you picked up on in Dennis Brown or was there there other things happening at that point with reggae? I I thought you were going to say there was just just a song that you picked up from somebody's house, uh, you know, when I was nicking records in it. Yes, it was, actually. Um, But I, I, you know, there was... There was something going is on. There, is there like a nicking records playlist thing that we could like <laughs> to do another time? Well, there's, <laughs> there's probably three of them here. That, you know, um, so you know, I'm expect I'll be expecting a knock on the door. Uh, <laughs> it's the first person who's ever outed themselves for a crime. <laughs> earlier. Um, I, I I think you remember uh, Janet Case, Sally Games was mm-hmm. out around about the yeah. same time. Um, and there was always something about those records. Um, I loved Bob Marley, uh, say, from from the earlier days of The Clash. You knew that there was a kind of reggae attitude there as well. Um, and White Man and Hammersmith Pally was famously talking about, um, you know, reggae night that Joe Strummer was at and name-checking a few people. And, and you know, I, I think... Again, emblematic of the fact that you know you you start to appreciate that some of these records that are really great records are all connected. You know they're connected with influence or attitude or you know just there's a vibe about them. So you know you're drawing lines between the specials and um, Dennis Brown and Bob Marley and the Clash and all the rest of it. But I just you know again there's there's other than the other than the um, the shoplifting bit from someone's house, there's not really a story behind this. It's it's just a record that I love, you know. Mm. Um, and it, it was well, out from a few years ago, earlier than that. He'd actually recorded it early seventies, yeah, right? Early seventies. Yeah, that's right. Um, I had no knowledge of that at that time, but no. you know, um, as again, as you start to begin to look at where the influences of things that you like have come from, I, I hadn't appreciated that, and then. You know, you go back through um, reggae music and reggae records that are even now are are, are kind of phenomenal. Really, hmm. um, I started going back when you know, and I know it happens a lot, and it's it's. I guess it's unfortunate, but people die, and it, hmm. you know, maybe one of the great things about music is 
you know, you start to remember them and start to listen again to old records that you've got. I definitely did that when Lee Perry died. Uh, but, you know, there's music that you could listen to anytime. And it's, it's just, there's just an attitude behind all of it. Um, I love the, the record and the lyrics and the, the, the content of it. And it's another one that just takes me right back to, you know, those house parties and yeah. a time in your life where, you know, you feel that the whole world's in front of you. You may, you maybe not get any idea of what that what that means to you at the time or what you're going to do with that opportunity, but it's just such an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, he'd, he'd moved it's, to um, he'd moved to London, I think, just at this point. Uh, yeah. So he's actually living in London. So I think that'd be one of the reasons that he, he, he maybe got that penetration. Because um, yeah. he was bigger in the UK really than he was um, anywhere else, and yeah. then this uh, this kind of remix of the the song just came at the right time for him. I think yeah. Yeah. Um, talked about the Bob Marley thing, and he, he was a huge fan of him. He called mm-hmm. him the the Crown Prince of Reggae. Yeah, uh, yeah. from Marley, which is uh, is high praise, That's isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, and he was he was still going. I think when I, mean, I was doing some checking up on it, he had a couple of great records out uh, in the nineties, both Grammys. Yep. Grammy nominated, including one that was posthumous, um, mm-hmm. which um, which was which was nice as well. So I think some like seventy odd records or something that he knocked out over his, lot, um, yeah. his career. It's amazing. Um, I did pick up one um, one tune that maybe worth checking back on. Uh, so he did a, a kind of compilation um, album mid seventies called Super Reggae and Soul Hits, right. and it's really good because it's it's a really nice mix of songs. But it does a cover of Which Car Lyman on it. Oh. Right, right, okay, definitely. Which is just, you know, it's you can imagine what it is. It's um, every, everything you would expect it to be. Um, uh-huh. And I think it was a kind of like a reggae's reggae man, wasn't he? Just uh, yeah. Yeah. everyone had a lot of time for him. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was great they actually got a bit of recognition as well. It's also yeah. lovely to hear the song on the playlist. Aye. It's another different musical genre that you've managed to, to squeeze in as well, so... Uh, it's a nice way for us to finish. So it's taken a while. However, Dennis Brown eventually had commercial success with this song, reaching number 14 in the UK in the summer of 79. This is the sound of Dennis Brown with Money in My Pocket. That was Money in My Pocket by Dennis Brown, and it's a lovely way to finish off this podcast, which has been all about 1979 with our guest, um, David F. Ross. Uh, before we finish, David, where can we find you on Twitter? Um, it's at DFR10. Okay, and what about a website? Uh, or oh, the website, what's the website called? Um, davidfross.co.uk Perfect. Okay, we'll make sure that goes on the podcast. Really patient you join us today, David. It's been great. And songs you've selected and those in the playlist reflect what a strong year for music 79 was. As we've said on the other podcast, whether it was the best remains to be seen. So thanks again for that. It's been it's a pleasure. A, it's a qualitative term, the best, doesn't it? It is. And we're going to have some arguments uh, for sure when we actually review them all at some point down the line. Might get you back on for that, actually. Uh, today's podcast and the supporting playlist can be found on Spotify by searching Over Our Garden Wall. Join the chat on Facebook using the same search or find us on Twitter at Over Our Wall. So with me, Dee, uh, we will be back soon with another guest proposing pop music's greatest year. But until we do, we will leave you with a bonus selection from David's playlist from 79. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe, everyone. All the best. <laughs>